So I've pulled out all of these things that I use once a year. I've got the big stack of note cards. Uh, I've got the wireless mic. Uh, I've got spotting charts I'm putting together. I am all but ready to go to the stag bowl. Can we leave right now? Uh, that would help us get there early. Is that helpful to get there early? It definitely tends to, to uh, especially if you plan to go to the Gallardi Trophy ceremony or uh, practice before the game or uh, tailgating. What if I just want to hang out at Mac and Bob's all week? You probably can, you probably can get there right now. Yeah, should be open. Last time for all this stuff. Oh, because it's Salem. Yeah, Adam Turner made a really good point, actually, um, that it kind of wouldn't, wouldn't be right if the last uh, stag bowl in Salem didn't feature Mount Union. And for a, a little bit, looked like maybe it wasn't going to. And then uh, they, uh, they put together one of the more epic comebacks to, uh, to make sure they would participate in the first Stag Bowl in Salem back in 93 and be participating in the, uh, in the last one, or at least the, the last one for four years. I suggested that to Larry Karras after the game at Oshkosh on Saturday, that uh, it wouldn't be right to have the, the final Stag Bowl in Salem without the Purple Raiders there, and I, I did get a bit of a smile out of that from him. I'm sure he'll be much happier to, to hear you say, it wouldn't be right if the Purple, Purple Raiders didn't win the, the final Stag Bowl in Salem. Of course, if they go and, uh, and don't beat Mary Harden Baylor, then I don't think it's quite uh, as fun an accomplishment for them. Well, you think of uh, how many of the first, you know, they won uh, 10 of their first 11 trips or something like that, and now they're uh, 12 and 7 in Salem. So it's uh, it's no longer, they're no longer as unbeatable as they used to be, but Mary Harden-Baylor has never beaten Mount Union in Salem. So I guess the Purple Raiders have that going for them? Uh, well, Mary Harden-Baylor does have a winning record in, in three meetings against uh, Mount Union. So one of the very few programs that could claim that. Uh, the three times these teams have met, of course, it's been a classic each time. Go back to that one in, in 04, uh, 2012, the one where Mountain Union scores a winning touchdown with five seconds left. And then last season uh, in the semifinal, just like the first two meetings were, uh, last season, 14-12. So this time will be their first meeting in the Stag Bowl. They've, uh, they've always met with a trip to Salem on the line. This time they'll meet in Salem. Now you're making me... Uh want to go through and dig through the files to find our call of that 2004 semifinal at uh at like six kilobytes or something like that it, it was like the it was about as low res audio as you could get even in 2004 yeah i barely got that like i'm just technically savvy enough to know that sounds like a really small file a person in stagbo hangs in the balance perhaps at this very play fourth down and 11 for Mary Harden Baylor from the Mount Union 24 yard line. Coming out of a timeout. Two receivers out to the far side and one to the near. To Mary Harden Baylor going right to left. Welch out of the shotgun. Drops back to pass. Has time. Looking long, looking in the end zone. Jump ball and it is Walter Sharp with the touchdown catch. Does he have the ball? He does. The Crusaders have taken okay. the lead with 48.9 seconds remaining. We had to keep playing. There's a lot of there's a lot of game left. You know, we felt like we could uh, we could move the football and on them. You know, we just uh, got to keep playing. Try to get a couple stops defensively, and you know, our, our guys hung in there. They they, they stayed poised and uh, and persevered. Oshkosh, great team, and uh, it's uh, really stress you with everything that they do offensively. And uh, you know, they made some they create some big plays on us, and you know, it was uh, it was it was a difficult task. 
Yeah, we're excited. We're excited to be going back. You know, we made a, a, a goal early in the year to uh, try to get back to the uh, stag bowl. Um, a lot of things had to fall into place. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football. It's the largest division with the smallest schools. And I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. My co-host, Keith McMillan, has been calling the Stag Bowl with me since 1999. And here's where Keith will introduce himself in the style of Salem Stadium public address announcer Doug Ripley. A uh, six foot three, two hundred and some odd pound defensive back, twenty years past his prime. He's now podcasting alongside Pat Coleman and not playing football. And before we get to the point of starting lineups, which uh, approximately six fifty four p.m. Eastern time on Friday night in Stag Bowl forty five, we have a long, not a long, sorry, make it a short week to get ready for it. But it won't be anything new for Mary Harden Baylor or Mount Union. They've each done this before, as both will be returning. To Salem, Virginia for a Friday night stag bowl. And it's only fitting that the final stag bowl in the Roanoke Valley will feature two teams in the traditional Division Three purple. But it sure didn't look like it was going to be that way for a while on Saturday as Mount Union was trailing 35 to 10. But we'll talk about the comeback and everything else around it here in the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 188. And in fact, Keith, we had uh, not just that, we had a couple of notable things on Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. Mount Union and Wisconsin Oshkosh play a game for the ages. Mount Union stages a comeback for the ages. That's a lot of rhyming. You know what a rhyme is, don't you? That's when words sound alike, like frog and log. 25 points down in the third quarter of that game, and they closed it to 35-30 by the end of the quarter and ended up winning that game 43-40 when a Wisconsin Oshkosh field goal attempt uh, falls short. Uh, at the buzzer, so it ended up being basically an epic semifinal. One of the, you know, Pat, we talk about this all the time. How the first couple of rounds of the playoffs are the chance for uh, programs that don't make the playoffs very often to get a win under their belt to kind of experience it, have that um, moment of pride for their program, and then the quarterfinals and semifinals are really when the excellent, memorable games are played and and the uh, the rubber meets the road, the wheat separated from the chaff, whatever cliche you want to say but that's when the really the really good teams prove themselves and I thought this semifinal weekend was was no different you look at the game in Texas Mary Harden Baylor pitches uh another shutout you add that to the one uh, against Linfield in round two and essentially the shutout they had if not for the last play against Chapman in round one that would be three shutouts in four rounds uh, 16 points allowed overall in four playoff games. Three of those playoff opponents were top 10 opponents. So we're looking at basically an almost unprecedented run of defense for Mary Harden Baylor continuing on Saturday and then an almost unprecedented comeback for Mountain Union. And I think, too, Keith, if we had had replay in the first round of the playoffs, we'd be talking about three playoff shutouts for Mary Harden Baylor instead of two. Epic comeback for Mount Union, trailing by 25, coming back to win. You know, we did some research about this uh, on Saturday, and the research only goes as far back as we have box scores for every game. So 
it's actually not very far. But here are some of the other recent playoff games in which a, a team has come back from 20 or more down to win. And these were all pretty memorable games, Keith, as you kind of go back and remember them. 20-point uh, comeback for Linfield. Uh, for Wesley, Linfield took a 27-7 lead at Wesley into the half, and then the Wolverines rallied to win 49-34 in the second round in 2011. Same day, North Central takes a 21-0 lead at the half at Wabash, and then the Little Giants rallied to win 29-28 on a two-point conversion with 52 seconds left. Uh, like I said, that was the second round of 2011. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor scored the first 21 points at Linfield in the quarterfinals in 2015, and then the Wildcats rallied to win 38-35 and a uh, 22-point comeback for Wittenberg. They were trailing 28-6 to and came back to beat Heidelberg 52-38 in the first round in 2012. Uh, obviously, a lot of first and second round games, a, a really good quarterfinal. Um, but to have this happen on the semifinal stage, have it happen on ESPN3 with the trip to Salem right there in a team's grasp is uh, – we've used the word epic so many times, and I don't have the thesaurus in front of me to come up with another word for that. Well, unprecedented might be a pretty good way to put it. It might be. It, uh, we think it's true anyway. It's hard to tell. Yeah, it's certainly not anything that we remember happening before to quite this level. You mentioned some of the great comebacks. Uh, Frank Rossi and I were there for that Linfield-Wesley game. We've all watched games, too. If, if you know you watch football for even a couple seasons, you'll see a game that one team seems to have in control. Then all of a sudden, the other team gets rolling. It gets out of control for the team in the lead. And sometimes it feels like even the team in the lead is losing, and they start to either tighten up or they play scared or whatever. We've all seen games like that, but I don't know if we've ever seen one uh, involving teams of this magnitude, Mount Union and UW Oshkosh, uh, at this level. And also, I think, uh, this late in the game. It wasn't just, you know, we've seen it happen with comebacks by more than three touchdowns before. So the 25 points uh, is the biggest number we could find for a uh, playoff game and certainly for a semifinal game. Uh, but again, we didn't go all the way back to the, the beginning of D3 history. But I think the point at the in the game where, remember, this was a, a 21-10 game at the half and Oshkosh extended it to 35-10 with two quick touchdowns in the third quarter. So there were definitely people on Twitter who were, who were ready to bury Mountain Union at that point. I was pretty confident that they were at least not going to roll over. Uh, who knew that they were going to be able to come back and get it within five points by the end of the third quarter? They came back so quickly. Uh, that That's what I thought really stood out about and what was so un unprecedented is that they were down 35-10 and in a span of eight minutes of game time and probably not a whole lot longer real time, they, they turned it back into a game, and all of a sudden, it was a must-watch for the fourth quarter. And the way the two games were staggered on Saturday, um, Mary Harden-Baylor and Brockport kicked off. But if you if you weren't at that game or super interested in following one of those two teams, you had to stay with the, the Mountain Union-Oshkosh game because that's the one that got really exciting. Yeah, you heard Vince Karras talk in uh, the opening uh, intro about uh, six minutes ago about his team just knowing it needed to stay poised and needed to keep doing what it was doing. Because in all honesty, Keith, uh, early on in that game, and we're going to talk about this game more in depth uh, coming up in a little bit, but early in the game, what was fueling uh, the Oshkosh uh, scoring drives, and not all of them were even drives, were just big plays, big play to uh, Sam Minkowski, big kickoff return. Another big pass play, and you know, it, it seemed like that was something that certainly Mountain Union could make an adjustment and fix. Yeah, especially when you're you're not giving up drives 
down the field of 10 or 12 plays where they're chipping away. The first uh, Oshkosh drive where they uh, missed a field goal, that was a nice series of plays or sequence of plays for Oshkosh where they didn't have really one huge gain, um, but they moved the ball down the field. But then after that, the 72-yard play to Metkowski was really a a sort of jump ball uh, thrown out of the end zone, maybe 25, 30-yard play if uh, if the defensive backs on site make the tackle. They miss the tackle, and it turns into a 72-yard play. Then uh, then there was the 86-yard catch uh, where Menkowski just got behind the defense. And other than that, uh, there were there were a thir- there was a 30-yard run and a 43-yard run early in the second half, and there was a 20-yard pass at the very end of the game to set up the field goal. But other than that, uh, Mount Union didn't give up big plays, so they they part of the reason they got behind is because because they did give up big plays. They also had a sequence early in the the first half where. It sort of became irrelevant once the the game got out of hand and then Mountain Union came back. But there was a sequence uh, where they get to the one-yard line, then they have a false start, and a um, I forget what the other bad play was. But in any case, they were basically getting ready to punch it in and tie it at 14. They ended up, end up only making it 14-10. Oshkosh gets the ball back, makes it 21-10 before the half. If you looked at where they were at the half, statistically, it was they were basically even in total yards. But uh, Oshkosh had 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 pulled ahead with the uh, with the big play, so I think there was reason to believe that Mountain Union could get back into the game. But I think when you're at 35-10, 10 minutes left in the third period, you figure Mountain Union's just got to get one score and then slowly put this thing together. And they just did it so quickly that I thought that was really what stood out about it and what folks on both sides of this rivalry uh, or or I don't know if we want to call it a rivalry, but on both sides of this uh, epic game, we'll remember. To quickly look at the other game, the uh, Mary Harden-Baylor-Brockport game, you know, I, keep, you, I know you spent a lot more time watching this game than I did because I was at Oshkosh. Um, I tuned in and watched the uh, first couple plays, and uh, if you were a Brockport uh, fan and you gave up after the, or you, you stopped watching after the first quarter, I mean, you didn't miss a lot of scoring, but you missed your team looking fairly decent. Yeah, and, and part of that is Mary Harden Baylor's MO, right? They they get ahead on teams and then they sort of just strangle them out. They they run the they run the clock, they run the ball, um, they don't give up big plays and, and they keep everything in front of them and tackle. So that that's fairly well what Mary Harden Baylor does. Therefore it's you can say Brockport played them evenly, um, but you could also say, well, this just fits what what kind of the way Mary Harden Baylor plays. But I think if you got to watch those final three quarters, uh, UMHB gets up 21-0 in the first quarter. And then it was a a fairly even game. Brockport moved the ball. Brockport caused some problems for Mary Harden Baylor. They had four sacks. Um, there were there were times where Mary Harden Baylor looked ineffective on offense. And if you're a, a Mount Union fan and you somehow have time to go back and watch that game, there there'll be reasons for for you to be optimistic that the Mount Union defense and the Stag Bowl can cause some problems for the Mary Harden-Baylor offense based on what you saw Brockport do. And even going back a week earlier, what we saw the St. Thomas defense do to Mary Harden-Baylor's offense. But I also think, and I think we should also qualify too, this is a shutout, but there were 
tw- there were two times where Brockport drove inside the 10-yard line, could have kicked field goal, so um, they went for it on fourth down. They didn't get it either time. Once was right before the, the half, and it was a huge stop on a swing pass that was incomplete. And another time was later in the game, um, Germanario threw into the end zone, and uh, that pass was intercepted, and that was a big fourth down stop. Also, at that point, a little bit less of a gutsy call because Brockport was down 24 at that point. But to boil this game down, the, if you break down the the Oshkosh Mount Union game into first half, Oshkosh pulls away, and then Mount Union come back, and it's sort of that that tale of two games. This was a tale of two games in Belton, where Mary Harden Baylor quick early turnover interception by Chris Brown. Then uh, Brockport has a long drive, go out. Um, Ends on downs. Mary Harden-Baylor drives the length of the field, scores to make it 14. Then Brockport fumbles. Mary Harden-Baylor turns that into a touchdown. So two turnovers helped lead to the 21-0 lead. And then it was, it was really an even game after that. But but by that point, you know you have that defense with Mary Harden-Baylor. And, and uh, even though Brockport moved the ball to some degree, there was there was no coming back. Pronunciation 101. Univistic. Monon Belt. Univistic. Teal. Hassan. Gallardi. Germanario. Yeah, that's how you pronounce Germanario. Yeah, I, I can do it. Um, what a difference a week makes, right? Just in time for, for um, him to no longer be in the tournament. But he's a sophomore. He'll be around, so we'll file this away for next season. We're going to be back with our game balls, and uh, we'll go more in depth in each of the two games. We'll check our uh, look at the preview of the Stag Bowl. Keith will have some keys to the game. We'll also do uh, risers and fallers. We're going to talk about uh, final top 25 ballots, although obviously number one and number two on uh, everyone's ballot, pretty much up for grabs. In fact, entirely up for grabs. We'll be back in a minute. This edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by FanRays. And what FanRays offers is hassle-free, risk-free handling of your online apparel store. No longer do you have to sift through boxes of gear to fill someone's order. FanRays handles it all, including shipping to your customer. And your program gets its share of the profits. Now your store can be open year-round, not just for two weeks. And you don't have a bunch of printouts or emails or handwritten slips of paper sitting around your desk waiting until you have enough for a bulk order. They'll handle it all for you at thefanrays.com. We're back, and it's time for game balls. And, Keith, my game ball for Saturday is going to go to Mount Union wide receiver Jared Ruth. Had 11 catches for 130 yards in that 43-40 win versus UW Oshkosh. Only one of Mount Union's touchdowns came through the air, but Ruth had some big catches regardless. Five of his catches were for first downs, uh, including a 28-yarder to get the Purple Raiders down to the 12-yard line on the drive that gave them the lead. And uh, he just made some great catches in coverage on Saturday, as did Justin Hill, for that matter. And Luke Harrington had a, a couple of really nice catches for Mount Union as well. Once Mount Union got those those two guys involved, that offense really started to hum a lot better. There was a pass interference call that one of them drew. There was a sequence uh, during the comeback where the, it goes like completion to Ruth, completion to Hill, completion to Hill, completion to Ruth, something like that, where uh, those guys really made a difference for, for the Mountain Union offense. So great pick for your game ball, Pat. Mine goes to the Mary Harden-Baylor defense for pitching essentially the third shutout in four playoff games. The crew, as I've mentioned, have faced three top 10 teams along the road to Salem and have allowed the 16 points. It was Chapman, Linfield, St. Thomas, and Brockport. If it weren't cast against such an unprecedented come-from-behind Mount Union victory, we'd probably spend even more time talking about how unprecedented and unbelievably good this defense has been against Brockport. 
The crew forced three turnovers, added seven more sacks, twice held on fourth down in the red zone, and made four fourth down stops overall. Brockport came in averaging nearly 40 points per game over its first 13 game, all wins, and couldn't get on the board in Belton, although uh, it eschewed field goal tries more than once, as I mentioned. Uh, in any case, the crew defense is on the verge of doing something legendary, helping repeat a national championship, although the challenge next week is vast. All they've won so far is my game ball. Well, and they've won four playoff games so far. Uh, I know that uh, if you look at the front page of D3Football.com right now, for example, as we're recording this, we've got uh, maybe about 600 votes on our, our fan poll uh, that asks how many points will Mary Harden Baylor allow in the Stag Bowl. It's pretty evenly split. I, I gave people the option of 16, which is the number they've given up so far, 16 or fewer. Um, that's got 22%, 17 to 24 is 31%, 25 to 31 is 29%. Um, some very optimistic, probably Mountain Union fans, uh, suggest that, uh, Mary Harden Baylor will give up 32 or more, 16% of those. But, uh, you know, generally I'm expecting a low scoring game. Well, there have definitely been a few times in the Mountain Union Whitewater era where we thought we knew what kind of stag bowl we were going to see. And then it went completely the opposite direction. Sometimes we thought, all oh, these two teams have great defenses. They're going to play a, a tight game. It ends up being 38-28 or whatever the case may be. And then there was that one year, I think 2011, where they played a 13-10 game. And we thought they both had high-powered offenses. So there's certainly some precedent for the game not going like we expect it to go. But I think most people who've been paying attention figure Mary Harden-Baylor's defense so good that that to some degree – that defense could control the game. But I think it's also perfectly valid to suggest that you look back the past three weeks, Mountain Union's offense, and remember, they've alternated quarterbacks. They score 45 points, 70 points, and then 43 against Oshkosh on Saturday. It's also valid to suggest that that offense won't be shut down. And uh, we will talk even more about the Stag Bowl matchup coming up in a little bit, but let's talk about how these teams got there, especially uh, kind of going uh Picking our way back through this comeback, Keith. Okay, at this point, people know what happened. One of the most epic comebacks in D3 history. But let's talk a little bit about how it happened. There's some debate as to whether UW Oshkosh took its foot off the gas pedal. And how you feel about that might be related to what stood out the most over the eight minutes, three seconds between the Titans leading 35-10 and the Purple Raiders closing it to 35-30. That's the lack of a UW Oshkosh pass rush. Partially, that was by design, all game, to compensate for a defense that wasn't necessarily Oshkosh's strength this season, and it wasn't going to be able to go man-to-man -man with the Purple Raiders' offensive weapons anyway. But there were way too many three-man rushes, and even those seemed designed to keep D'Angelo Fulford bottled in as opposed to getting to him, making him rush his passes. There were definitely chances where Oshkosh had eight men in zone coverage. There were times where they dropped nine. Uh, and while it had worked at points earlier in the game, the Purple Raiders patiently exploited it during their comeback. On one hand, the game was statistically even at the half, although Mountain Union trailed 21-10, so one could say the Purple Raiders, during their comeback, did a lot of what had been working and finally just cashed it in for points. But they also started getting the ball to Ruth and Hill more. Meantime, Mountain Union did a better job defensively, and Oshkosh made a few mistakes that made the comeback easier. The first three and out came with Mountain Union stacking the box on first and second down, and then there was a Dom Tottarello drop on third down. The second featured the weird... Mitch Gerhardt's personal foul, well, where he was getting up from being tackled, and he, he sort of 
ran into the, to the defensive back and they they called a personal foul on him and then immediately followed by a Brett Casper fumble uh, at where where he was just reading and he dropped it at the at the mesh point. That one was huge because Mount Union already had the momentum of scoring twice by then. Linebacker Trey Williams recovers that at the 13. Mount Union scores a few plays later and from that point on at 35-30 it was basically a reset game. Yeah, I've I've never seen such a lack of momentum for a team that had just stopped a key two-point conversion. Uh, Titans still had a five-point lead at that point, and in fact, they got a big kickoff return immediately following. They added a field goal to go back up by eight, but I don't think anybody thought that they were suddenly going to start getting defensive stops again. Even when Oshkosh got the defensive two-point conversion on Mount Union's next touchdown, it was clear there was way too much time left, uh, 9.36 at that point, and the Purple Raiders were eventually going to go on and win that game. Yeah, the key sequence was really how quickly Mount Union got those three touchdowns to make it from being a runaway to, to turn it back into being a game. One thing I noticed while re-watching the third quarter on Sunday, Vince Karras' expression never changes at 28-10, at 35-10, or during the three-touchdown comeback. If a program reflects its leader, the poise Mount Union showed while quickly making it a game again was evident in the stoic, expressionless demeanor of its coach on the sideline, even during the worst of times. There's one point at the 159-35 mark of the broadcast, if you happen to want to look it up, Karras is on the sideline coaching a freshman linebacker, Mitch O'Hara, just as normally as he would at any point during any other game during the season. Uh, if you want to scroll back to about 138-139 on that broadcast, the camera sits on Fulford after he throws the pick six, and it's probably as bad a throw as, as he's made all season. He'd probably be the first to tell you that. Uh, he just was uh, trying to scramble away from pressure, was falling away, and throws it into into coverage, didn't get enough on it, and that turns into the Cole Yoder interception return of touchdown. So twenty, they're trailing 21-10 at the half. They go down 28-10, just as low a moment as you could have in the game. And if you watch for this one minute of the broadcast, no fewer than like three or four teammates come over to him, uh, pat him on the helmet, tell him he's fine, whisper something in his ear. Uh, you never see the coach any coaches, not just, just Coach Karras, but you never see anyone on the sideline getting down on themselves. They're also not getting like super animated and hyped either. I, th- I think he just, at that point for, for, for Fulford, you know, he just wants to get back in the game and, uh, and make it right. And even though Mount Union doesn't immediately get back in the game, remember they went down after that pick six, they went down by another touchdown. I thought it was it was evident from watching that and especially rewatching it, the 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 body language on the sideline, the demeanor for a team that never trails during the season. I mean, literally is almost never behind in a game. It seemed like they weren't rattled at all down 28, 10, 35, 10. Think of all the times, Keith, over the course of the last 20 years where we've seen new Mount Union quarterbacks or inexperienced Mount Union quarterbacks have this kind of seminal moment where. Things come together for them. They lead a big drive, in this case, several big drives, and then kind of cement themselves as the go-to guy, the leader for Mount Union. Not that the team doesn't already know that, but now this person has just shown it to the rest of the Division Three world at large. And I think Mount Union has really embraced this role of um, Mount versus everybody or um, us against the world. You know, you see it in, in different hashtags on Twitter or um you see it in just some of the sometimes it's subtle the way they've reacted to things over the past several weeks. But you figure they're inspired this year um, playing very inspired football. You, you see them saying, um, you know, they love they love their team and they've kind of 
rallied around one another. And I think that's what teams are supposed to do. That's what you expect uh, college kids to do to sort of take everything outside as a slight and maybe turn it into motivation. All that's fine. But I also think, Pat, as you mentioned, you're looking at perhaps the, the, the coronation now of the next Kevin Burke from Mountain Union, a quarterback who right now is a sophomore who's, who's played all season great, shown the program that when times are tough, he's able to lead them back. And I think obviously he doesn't do it by himself. He has an offensive line, um, offensive playmakers, and a great defense that all played a huge role in that comeback, a coach who never never lost his cool on the sideline, all that uh, comes together. But you figure if they get this done this year, if they get this done on Friday night, the sky's the limit for the next two seasons. Last year, of course, they didn't quite get there. They had four consecutive playoff games on the road. They lost in the national semifinals at Mary Harden-Baylor, but Vince Karras talked after the game about how that helped this team out. Going on the road last year and, and having four straight playoff games on the road, you know, mo- most of these guys that are playing, you know, they were a part of that. And uh, uh, I think that, you know, I, I think that one thing I think helps teams, you know, at our level is when you've gone through a long season, you know, it, it's a grind. You're going out to practice every day. It's cold. Your, your body's beat up. Uh, you know, it's the end of the semester. You got a lot on your plate academically. You know, the experience of going through that really helps. And to, to go on it and be on the road is even more difficult. There's more time away from, you know, away from home and, and studying and, and classes and those sorts of things. And, you know, I think that, that experience really helped our team. Keith, as we switch over to the second semifinal where Mary Harden Baylor defeated Brockport 24 0, I thought I would let crew coach Pete Fredenberg have the opening statement. No, shoot, man, I'm excited about being 2 or 12. Yeah, that's a concern. And, you know, the thing that amazes me is that um, I, I think that it's an ongoing uh, maturation of our quarterback and uh, things that he can do. Uh, there's times that I felt like that he could have delivered the ball and he held it a little bit too long. But I, I, I just think that um, it's, a, it's a work in progress and we've got to – continue to go uh, and do the things that we do. You know, as long as our defense can shut them out, uh, we've got a chance to win. <laughs> I think that's a nice window into the mind of Coach Fredenberg. Here's a guy who's had the number one team the entire season, defending champions. They're winning games comfortably early in the season, but he was and he and his offensive coaches are looking to make a quarterback change and actually made a couple of quarterback changes until they settled on Carl Robinson the third. Uh, they were changing kickers uh, or kickoff guy you know midway through the season. They're always looking to tweak and and make improvements to what to what the end goal is. In other words, they're never satisfied. You know, week six, we're, we're beating somebody pretty handily. Well, that's great, but their eyes are on getting to week 15. And I think that's maybe for both of these teams in the Stag Bowl, kind of scary that their quarterbacks, one being a freshman, one being a sophomore, that uh, some of their key playmakers are young guys as well. Now, they obviously have the senior leadership uh, that they that you need on, the, on defense, and they have experienced uh, along the lines and that sort of thing. But the fact that they haven't even necessarily tapped into the best possible version of themselves, uh, that bodes well for, for Friday night because you may see – one of these guys or both of these guys have a breakout performance. Yeah, I think with 
with Robinson, the, one of the things that uh, Coach Fred said here uh, is he holding on to the ball too long. That's not something that you're going to be particularly well equipped to do against Mountain Union. I know that we think uh, pretty highly of the Brockport defense, and Brockport's defense performed very well over the course of the regular season. I think we also assume that even though this isn't the best defense that Mountain Union has put out there, that it's better than what Mary Harden Baylor faced against Brockport on Saturday. Pat, I, I do think Mary Harden Baylor has faced some pretty stiff tests, though, defensively on this playoff run. Brockport was able to get pressure on, on Carl Robinson. Um, St. Thomas was as good a defense as as anybody in the tournaments had. Mm-hmm. Linfield, no slouch. So I, I think that even though Mountain Union pretty good on the front end of their defense, they've given up some big plays against against Frostburg and against Oshkosh. So there may be some room to to exploit that. And they may Mary Harden Baylor may want to on Friday night try to take some shots early to uh, you know, either you want to get some quick plays to get to get Robinson comfortable, or you want to take some shot plays early to try to get that lead so you can lean on the defense. And I think there's there's a little bit of of chess match that may go on between this Mount Union defense and the Mary Harden Baylor offense. Uh, that's fair. That's a good point. Uh, obviously, not uh, when you zoom out a little bit and not just focus on the past week. Go back to the previous week and uh, uh, the St. Thomas game and the Linfield game. Robinson will have faced that kind of pressure. I just know that uh, I guess the reviews weren't great about how Mary Harden Baylor handled the the pressure on Saturday, and I know that it's going to get ratcheted up in more than one way on Friday. Well, that's been the case the past couple of weeks. Ten sacks between the St. Thomas game and the Brockport game and you could you could probably bend that stat either way right you can if you're a crew supporter you can say well at least we face great defenses maybe we'll make adjustments and if you're rooting for Mount Union here you say well if if Brockport can get to them we can certainly get to them but i do think that's a, le- a legitimate takeaway from Saturday is Brockport is a good team they were semifinal level I don't know that we're stunned that they lost by 24. Um, the shutout was a little bit surprising, but again, Mount, uh, Mary Harden Baylor, great defense. I think Brockport was. I mean, maybe if if you just flipped, if you just flipped the 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 games where St. Thomas is the the semifinal opponent, Brockport is a quarterfinal opponent. Maybe it looks, you know, like a little bit more of a natural build. For, for Mary Harden Baylor as the opponents get harder each weekend. But I don't think there you should anybody out there should glaze over the fact that they faced Brockport this past weekend. Brockport uh, threw a lot at Mary Harden Baylor with its uh, with its pass rush and honestly was fairly decent run defense as well. Um, and it made it made defensive backs work. It had a quarterback who's uh, mobile, who can throw, who can spread the ball around, who can make the right reads. So this this crew. It's very easy to say, and I don't want to get into like an East Region thing here, but it's very easy to look at a team like Brockport and think if you don't pay attention closely to what's going on in other parts of D3 and you've never heard of that team before that, eh, Mary Harden Baylor had an easy quarterfinal round matchup, a semifinal round matchup. I don't think it was easy by any means. and I think those tests may end up being pretty helpful tests in terms of helping Mary Harden-Baylor identify where it was weak going into the stag bowl. Jeremy Nario, 
throws 53 passes, completes 31 of them for 196 yards. One of the things I like to look at is yards per attempt because it suggests to me, you know, how willing a team is to take a deep shot down the field or even throw, you know, to the second level for that matter. An average of under four yards an attempt, an average of just about a little over six yards a completion suggests that uh, Brockport was playing it close to the line of scrimmage or Mary Harden Baylor wasn't permitting it, which was, uh, which is your take? To me, I, I think it's the tackling for, for Mary Harden Baylor. Brockport gets quick completions, finds guys in open space, but the thing and Mary Harden, and Mount Union is going to have to adjust to this on Friday night as well. The, the plays you make during the season against slower defenses are going to be there yeah. against Mary Harden Baylor and the, the vice versa should be true for Mary Harden Baylor's offense against Mount Union's defense. Uh, Tyoka Jackson, who was the color man on on this game, actually pointed this out during the broadcast. Times where there where holes are opening up on runs, and the running back is bending it too wide instead of just take hitting that hole quickly. Same thing. Sometimes a receiver would catch it in space and and try to kind of whip around and dance around instead of just getting there and getting as much as you can because these defenses, especially the Mary Harden-Baylor defense, they close on the ball so quickly and they tackle so well when they get there that they're, they're, there's, no, there's not a lot of time to dance around. You're not going to, uh, generally, you're not going to shake a guy in open space. And so a lot of stuff that you might try or that might work during the season, same thing, uh, trying to run to the perimeter and stretch out long runs thinking that a crease is eventually going to open up you just don't see that happen all that often against this mary harden baylor defense and a big reason is because they pursue to the ball so quickly and they tackle when they get there a lot of uh new names that we've talked quite a bit about obviously in terms of carl robinson but uh mark keith miller is a veteran guy at running back and the the key receivers over the course of the last several weeks are guys that we're all familiar with right bryce wilkerson has been a, a key guy tj josie we have uh known all about he made a big splash in the uh the 2016 season denarian thomas as well this is kind of a veteran crew of wide receivers for the crew and i think they're going to want to get the ball to those guys early again one of two reasons one you just want to get robinson some completions under his belt early in the game you know it's the stag bowl but relax you want to get him comfortable of course you know guys played in huge games in high school before so maybe this isn't uh, too big a stage for him but the other thing is i think they, they're going to want to just try to hit hit some shots to those guys because that's where the the weaknesses on the Mountain Union defense, or at least that's where it's been the past couple of weeks, judging by the number of plays that Frostburg State and and Oshkosh were able to hit. So you want to try to hit a deep post or or some kind of um, play action play down the middle or early in that game, and you just want to get the ball in in the hands of your best playmakers, and that means Wilkerson, Josie, and some of those other guys. Before we move on and talk really hardcore about Stag Bowl 45, I want to ask one more question about the national semifinal. And uh, that is basically, is Joe Germanario an All-American, in your opinion, this season specifically? I I think the easy answer is yes. Um, But I also think the the competition at quarterback, generally pretty pretty difficult. You got Casper, who is... I have no inside information on this, but I'm guessing he's going to win the Gallardi Trophy later this week. Um, so you have that probably maybe your first team All-American. And so then there's really only uh, one, two other spots. 
available uh, for another 248 quarterbacks. Uh, Germanario certainly was as good as anyone, or better than anyone, for uh, for the better part of the season. On Saturday, uh, 31 for 53, 196 yards, a long pass of 21 yards, no touchdowns, two interceptions. The interceptions, very costly. One of them uh, early in the game was, was clearly um, – just thrown into a, a zone coverage. Chris Brown was either dropped off his man or was uh, meant to drop that deeply. But, uh, you, you know, it's hard to tell because we don't have all 22 footage. So you're just looking at a tight angle of of where the uh, the the play was. But it was easy interception for Brown and, and not a good throw by Germanario. And then the, the one in the end zone, I think you have to take a shot into the end zone on fourth down there. So you don't beat him up too badly for that one. But it wasn't great. On Saturday, but he wasn't bad. He certainly didn't look like he didn't belong on that field with Mary Harden Baylor. So I'd say I'd say probably, but um, I haven't really stopped to think uh, which of the other all-region guys would, would would slot in maybe a little better than him. We will announce the full D3Football.com All-America team in the pregame show for Stag Bowl 45. We will have a uh, live video pregame show from Salem Stadium, and then uh, Keith and I and Frank Rossi will have live audio coverage of Stag Bowl 45. We hope you will join us. Uh, Keith and I have called the Stag Bowl for uh, each of the previous 18 years. This will be number 19, and uh, although the game is also, of course, uh, televised on ESPNU. We know not everybody has access to ESPNU. And maybe you'd like to hear from people who know the Division Three teams and know things about Division Three. We would love to be those people for you. Um, so, yeah, that leads us up to what's next, which is this game on Friday night, uh, Stag Bowl 45 between... Mary Harden Baylor in Mount Union, and uh, we've talked about it already a little bit that the conventional wisdom is it's going to be a low-scoring affair. I think that's a reasonable assertion because uh, we've already talked about Mary Harden Baylor ought to be able to keep the Mount Union offense relatively contained, and I think the crew offense is probably not in position to do what Oshkosh did to the Purple Raiders on Saturday. Yeah, but I think they have to try. You know, they don't have a, a Sam Menkowski necessarily, but they have to try to get the ball to Wilkerson, to Josie, take some shots. Early, just because again the number of of big plays allowed against Frostburg and Oshkosh dictates that there may be some there for the taking. Uh, I also think Mary Harden Baylor's defense should be able to get a pass rush for with its front four. You don't see them blitz all that often, and I think um, that's ba- they're they're a, a base four two team, so they generally will keep six in the box. That's why they're so good on the back end because they always have five guys in coverage. And those guys come up and tackle well, but I think. With those six in the box, they're going to either want to rush wide and try to bottle up Fulford because he w- he was really great um, a couple of times in that game against Oshkosh on third down where nothing was there and he just broke the pocket, ran for a key first down. And especially when first downs are hard to come by against a great defense, putting together drives, keeping them from being three and outs, keeping from having to put your defense back on the field right away after it just came off the field. Getting some drive extending first downs uh, are huge. And so I think Mary Harden Baylor is going to want to try to bottle up Fulford as much as possible. I thought he made some really heady runs too. Uh, not just the fact that uh, like you were talking about, but I, I thought he he made smart decisions in the open field as well. Uh, knew where he was able to get 10, 12, 15 yards and then you know, not take a hit from a Oshkosh defender. Also, if the uh, if if you watch the touchdown run, the uh, uh, the 
the 13 yard touchdown run, which is the one that was the second of the three in that sequence. He's just he's just keeping his feet moving, working his way through the pile, you know, working his way with the pile to the end zone. I thought he really ran the ball well on Saturday. Yeah, and showed a lot of emotion after that score as well. One thing that's going to be different, though, for Mount Union than it was against Oshkosh is Mary Harden Baylor is just going to have much better athletes in the secondary and a much more aggressive pass rush. Oshkosh, pretty much by design, was trying to drop guys into coverage, clog throwing lanes, play a lot of zone. Mary Harden Baylor will be able to switch between man and zone, can, can kind of do whatever it wants. They like to disguise the coverages, so they may walk guys up and then end up bailing out right before the snap. They'll they'll make it they'll make the sophomore quarterback have to think. And I'm sure the same will be true of of, of Mount Union's defense and, and the freshman quarterback for Mary Harden Baylor. So I think for both of these teams, the the level of athlete that they're going to see, the team speed on defense for both teams in the Stag Bowl is going to be a little bit eye opening and you may see some some misfires early on or some or some guys who get the ball in open space and think something's going to be there and all of a sudden that space closes up quickly because those defenses both pursue really well. I think a couple of keys for Mount Union, this one's kind of obvious, try to get pressure on Carl Robinson the third. Now you want him you want to rattle you want to rattle him early in the game. Freshman yeah. uh, is going to be on the big stage. You want to do whatever you can to rattle him. Also we've seen the past couple of weeks um, a couple of teams be able to get through that uh, Mary Harden Baylor offensive line. And, and I think the other really huge key for Mountain Union offensively, get Hill, Ruth, and Braden Friss involved early. Um, those are your best playmakers, even though the running game has worked really well with Jawanza Evans Morris and Josh Petroselli ba- basically being a one two punch. Uh, teams are going to want to try to establish the run against Mary Harden Baylor. Usually it doesn't work very well. I think the best bet for Mountain Union is to get the ball in the hands of those wide receivers early. One, because they're your they're your best playmakers in space. And two, I think you may get some quick completions, get an early rhythm going for uh, for for Fulford. And again, same thing, huge game, big atmosphere. You're going to be amped up for it. You want to get some quick completions just to settle everything down, get into the rhythm of the game. Because as a player, pre- pretty much after the first series, you, whether you have nerves or whether you just get really hyped up, after the first series or two, you kind of forget about a lot of that stuff and you're just kind of into your assignments and communicating with your team and and sort of locked in the game. And everything that's happening in the stands or um, the magnitude of the game is really on the periphery and you don't stop to think about it because you're so locked in. From a special team standpoint, obviously we talked about uh, the big kickoff return for uh, that set up a touchdown. And another big kickoff return that uh, led uh, Oshkosh to a, a field goal in the fourth quarter. And Mary Harden Baylor has one of the top return specialists in the game. Oh, that that Bryce Wilkerson return, the punt return against St. Thomas was the difference maker. Broke that game open when it was a 10-10 deadlock. So certainly that's a big key. And Mount Union gave up a 63-yard kick return against Frostburg. Gave up kick returns of 36, 68, 40, and 22 yards against uh, Oshkosh. So there's definitely some room for for Mary Harden Baylor to make a dent on special teams. By the same token, uh, Darian Littlejohn took a kickback. For, for Mount Union against um, Frostburg. So I think there's also um, 
a, a chance the Mountain Union comes up with a with a special teams play that makes a big difference. You know, maybe it's a punt block or something of that nature. Those things tend to make a huge difference in really tight games. So if it turns out to be the kind of game where points are hard to come by, teams are attempting field goals instead of scoring touchdowns. You know, you want to see uh, teams take some shots to their to their big play receivers, and both both sides have them. And then you're going to try to look for for maybe something happen on special teams. It's almost as if uh, both defenses are potentially capable of outscoring the offenses, or if you put defenses and special teams together, definitely capable of outscoring the offenses on Friday. Yeah, I mean, and that's the the conventional wisdom, right? But that's me. I'm all about the conventional wisdom. Woohoo! Hey, I mean, some it's still wisdom, right? It counts. But I do think these games sometimes unfold in a way we don't expect them to just because the nature of, of the game itself, because everybody is playing their best. I mean, this is this is it. And, and after those first few series of nerves, you know, all the players, these are the best players in the country. They're all locked in. Some of them are going to make some plays. So we may end up uh, seeing a low scoring game. We've you know, last season, Stag Bowl was low scoring and it, and low scoring didn't mean it wasn't exciting. The, uh, the 2011 Whitewater Mountain Union one, where it's 13-10, end up being a great game. Low scoring sometimes can be great. But also, you just there's so many playmakers on the field between Hill and Ruth and Wilkerson and Josie, and, and you got bruising running backs on both sides of the ball and Markeith Miller and, and Evans Morris. And then these quarterbacks, even though they're young, dynamic athleticism for both of them. So you may see some, some points go on the board, and this may turn into a game um, – where a couple touchdowns get up early and maybe it's 17-14 or 21-14 at the half. You know, you never really know with these stag bowls, Pat. You and I have done enough of these to know that sometimes what we think is going to happen goes out the window in the first 10 minutes or something. So who who knows? But I do think it's a strong possibility that Mount or, or Mary Harden Baylor does what it's been doing all season, which is get a small lead and, and play it close especially close to the vest when you have a a quarterback who can do a lot but is also a a young guy you don't want any turnovers especially in huge moments you may see mary harden baylor try to lean on its defense to, to bring another title home This week, voters should be preparing their final top 25 ballots. Hint, hint to all of you voters who are listening to this podcast uh, with the top spots obviously waiting for Friday night's game to determine the order of Mount Union and Mary Harden Baylor. So with that in mind, we're going to go back to risers and sliders on this week's podcast. And Keith, a riser on my ballot is definitely Wartburg. End up in the final eight, and even though the final eight isn't automatically the top eight in uh, the D3 football top 25, I think the Knights did enough with uh, two playoff wins, a relatively close loss at Oshkosh to make the move up my ballot. In fact, the Knights moved past a bunch of teams to get up to that spot, including past Frostburg State. And even though Frostburg State made this great run to the national quarterfinals, I already had them quite high on my ballot. So because of this, they actually slipped from 12 to 13, which I I thought was interesting enough to point out. And Warburg moved up for me too, but my riser is one of the few teams that earned some respect with the way it exited the playoffs. I thought Barry uh, held up pretty well in a second-round loss at St. Thomas and suggested that pretty soon one of the two D3 programs in football-rich Georgia could be a power to be reckoned with. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with them next year. That will be the sixth year of that program. 
My slider is St. John's. It was just really difficult for me to justify keeping St. John's as high as I had them after they lost at North Central. And for a game that was a 17-7 final score, there were just long stretches of that game where it seemed like the Johnnies were not really in the game at all. And this was against a team that was missing a, a running back that's a likely All-American. It's easy enough for a voter just to switch places for those two teams on their ballot, but I also nudged the Johnnies down a couple of extra spots as well. For voters, going back and, and reassessing or reassessing each week during the playoffs, even though we don't file a vote between the end of the regular season and the postseason, thinking about what happened in the first round and in and, and the second round and what it means now that we know who the final two teams are is, uh, is part of the challenge for a, uh, for a top 25 voter. For me, uh, a slider was, uh, was related to something that happened in the first round. Illinois Wesleyan fell from 10th to 17th on my ballot, I, I think. Um, I guess it's in pencil at this point or in – it's not finalized. I haven't turned it in. But I, I think um, after that 28-0 loss in the snow against Case Western Reserve in round one, uh, that's a pretty um, – it was a pretty telling result. It was surprising at the time. But um, but I think when you look back at Illinois Wesleyan's entire resume now, um, the best wins are, are against Whitewater and at Wheaton, victories that looked better at the time than they, they do now at the end of the season because uh, neither the, the Warhawks or Thunder made the playoffs. The loss to North Central hurt them because the Cardinals went out of the playoffs in the second round, losing by three touchdowns to Oshkosh. And, and IWU had uh, you know, nice wins uh, against Carthage and, uh, and Milliken. And the CCIW was not a weak league at, at all this season. But when you look back at it, 10 was 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 probably a little too high for a team that lost by 28 in the first round. I'm going to be the one delivering the whooping on uh, quick misses and quick hits this week. China, come on out and get your whooping. If we had a 45-minute football game on Saturday, I would have been pretty happy with my pick. I had picked uh, Oshkosh 35, Mountain Union 31. Uh, Greg Thomas picked uh, Oshkosh 35, Mountain Union 28. That fourth quarter makes a bit of a difference, and I think we give the quick hit on Saturday to Adam Turr, one of two people to pick the Purple Raiders out of our group of six, and he picked a final score of 42-31. to 31. So he, uh, I think, not only, of course, picked the correct winner, but at least had a game that was in the ballpark in terms of scores. I don't think I don't see anybody here saying that uh, Mount Union would rally from a twenty-five point deficit. Yeah, I don't see anything mm. like that. I, I do think there were there were a lot of game. When you look at a game that's a toss-up, sometimes you pick the wrong winner, but you have the right ballpark score. And I'm not necessarily trying to make excuses for myself because I uh, I did I picked Oshkosh as well, but I don't think I had a good sense going into that game whether I figured it would be a toss-up, and you don't necessarily know which team will win. I think we all basically picked high-scoring games. The lowest uh, combined score was 52 points. Uh, a couple of people picked that. Um, on the other game, of course, uh, the final score, as a reminder, since we've only mentioned it about five times, Mary Hart and Baylor beat Brockport to 24 to nothing. I think the quick hit on this one goes to Greg. Greg Thomas picked Mary Hart and Baylor 28 to seven. Um, if we were giving out honorable mentions, then uh, Adam picked 28 to 10. Um, and then, you know, I guess if, uh, if Brockport had kicked a couple of those field goals, then Greg would look good on a, even on a, uh, price is right basis. No, no, no good. Am I, uh, do I have to pull out the sad trombone for that one? I thought you were just going to move it on to the next one. I didn't realize you wanted to meet a Pat Greg on the back even more. 
we uh, we don't have any, of course, any other games. So those were our quick hits. We will have uh, expanded predictions uh, for this week. Not only our six, but uh, we'll also pull in some other people to get you as many different takes on Stag Bowl 45 as possible. Um, Keith, some non-Stag Bowl things happened this week uh, about uh, Brock Riggs from Heidelberg. Oh, we have a clip. Hold on a second. First and 10, Heidelberg. Stoyle rolling to his right. He's going to throw a backside, and it's going to be a little. Hey, Brock Riggs. The play. They did a little hook and ladder. So they went ahead and threw it out here to McGee, and they had Brock Brock Riggs Riggs on on the backside. They flip it to him, and he rolls it for the score. The place is going crazy. Yeah, if you don't remember this, from uh, one of our uh, play of the week reels late in the season. That is uh, Heidelberg tackle Brock Riggs. He's a senior, and he takes the hook and lateral and uh, you know takes it into the end zone for a touchdown. He won the Peisman Trophy, and if you're not familiar with the Peisman Trophy, Keith, tell us about the Peisman Trophy. It's the award given out each season to the uh, best play made by a lineman. Basically, uh, offensive line, defensive line, the times they get there there uh, to touch the ball. Um, this recognizes that, and it's sort of in all in good, good fun, good spirit. And I think uh, the Brock Riggs play is maybe it's maybe the best one we've seen because it involves uh, an offensive lineman getting to touch the ball, but then front flipping into the end zone. And there's a little backstory with that. If you haven't seen the clip, it will warm your heart like the Piesman it's named after. So uh, go go check it out. It's um, you know it's. Again, we, we, we do this for, for fun, for the love of the game, and that, that's like a, pu- a moment of pure love of football. Yeah, I, I really enjoy this award, and I, I enjoy the attention that uh, the folks behind it, uh, SB Nation and the, the people on that team who do this, give to the attention they give to uh, great offensive linemen plays throughout the season, not just here at the end of the season where they uh, you know put this uh, – voting together of 21 plays and then bring the top three uh, to New York for a, for a ceremony. I think that's just awesome. It really is. And, and honestly, the reel of, of plays, which I haven't even watched the whole reel this season, but when you, I remember doing it last year when uh, we were voting for, uh, uh, it was, it was Haston Adams and it was, uh, there was another play, maybe I want yeah. uh, like, like Oberlin or somebody like that. I, I'm, I can't remember who, who the other play was, but it was a, uh, uh, there were a couple D3 guys up for it last season. So I, I went in there with the uh, specific intent of just voting for the D3 guys. And then you start watching all the plays, and they're all awesome. So it's uh, it's fun. Linemen who do unlineman-like things, Peisman Trophy, it uh, certainly reflects love of the game. I, I just pulled up last year's for the heck of it. Uh, the finalists from Division Three included uh, Bryant Buzzard of Harden-Simmons, uh, also on that list, Harry Griffin of St. Scholastica. You mentioned the Hasten Adams play. Of course, there were two of those on the uh, on the list as well, from uh, just from Hasten Adams alone. Colton Koch from uh, Monmouth is the guy who was the finalist, right? That's the 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 guard for Monmouth who uh, took a toss and then threw it downfield that uh, for a, a deep ball. That that was pretty fun. That's that's the play I was thinking of too. I couldn't remember what school it was from. I knew it was somewhere in the Midwest. And this year, of course, not just Riggs uh, in the finals among Division Three players, but he was also joined by Xadrian Wilkins. He's the guy who uh, picked up that blocked extra point for Mac Murray. That's Mac Murray from Illinois. There's not an actual pronunciation difference between Mac Murray and McMurray from Texas, but I like to say Mac Murray for 
people who, uh, you know, to help people try to figure that out. Uh, that was one of them. And of course, the other one, as uh, we mentioned, was the the winner, Brock Riggs from Heidelberg. So uh, they they do a nice job of uh, really paying attention to everybody outside of uh, Division One FBS as well. And I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention that it's really Adam Turr on our team who's really good at uh, pointing those guys to some of the cool things that uh, linemen do at the Division Three level. Some other things uh, coming up this week. Of course, the Gillardi Trophy will be handed out on Wednesday night in Salem. Uh, Keith, we got those four finalists out of our list of uh, 10 semifinalists this week. Uh, Brett Casper, who we've already talked about. Nick Holcomb, who's the wide receiver for UW Lacrosse. And then Jordan Wilcox, the running back for Springfield. Matt Sasha, the quarterback for Warburg. Those are the four guys who will be there. We will, of course, have the live broadcast as we have now for several years, and uh, I'll talk to all four of those guys. And then one of them is going to get to take a trophy home. Keith, uh, you kind of gave your assessment on this earlier, and I would be hard pressed to uh, to dispute the con- again just from a conventional wisdom standpoint. Uh, we wrote this story last year in 2016 about Brett Casper's involvement with Be the Match, and in fact. Uh, I'll probably redistribute that story probably on Twitter or on uh, Facebook or in social media at some point this week. But that is really one of the things that helps, in my uh, estimation, really cement his candidacy. Yeah, and, and uh, ESPN re-ran the story during the broadcast. I know you were there, so you weren't you weren't watching. But um, the, the Phoenix Bridegroom story where uh, Brett Casper says basically – Hey, you sign up for this be the match thing, but you never think it's going to be you who gets picked. And then he ended up being really excited. That was him. He, he got to help change somebody's life. The team um, more or less adopts her um, and they they keep in touch or have kept in touch. And Gilardi Trophy, the, the committee is very specific about saying, look, we want you to pick the best football player for the award. But if you need a tiebreaker or – you know, you're on the fence about somebody there, their, their community service and their academics are, are in play and, and could be considered. So I think you and I probably personally, when we cast our vote, we want we want to pick somebody who represents the best of Division three, who represents the ideals. And that means being a great player, but also either being a good person or a good student or all those things wrapped into one. And pretty much without exception, the, tr- the trophies managed to select someone like that every season and, you know, 249 schools, whatever, 75, 80 players, at least on each roster, you, you'd think there'd be some candidates. And when you get to meet these four guys on on uh, Wednesday night, if you haven't met them already or if you don't know them already, you'll uh, you'll really be blown away because they tend to be the, the presentations, not just don't just highlight what a pretty good D3 player looks like, but they also give schools like Wisconsin lacrosse, um, Springfield, Warburg, Wisconsin Oshkosh, who don't always get a chance to be in the spotlight or share the spotlight when, when the teams in Salem are there. Um, it, you know, it's nice to, to see that the campus get some shine as well. 
Yeah, there won't be any purple on the podium on uh, Wednesday night, but of course it'll be all purple all the rest of the week. Uh, there, if I just say one more thing about Gallardi Trophy before we move on, uh, the only thing that I was disappointed about this year is that I know Chase Burton, the quarterback from Franklin, was nominated. He wasn't among the 10 semifinalists, so we never got an opportunity to vote for him, and that's somebody that I certainly could have seen myself voting for and is a guy who I think is going to be in contention with Casper for uh, first-team All-America quarterback honors. Well, you would know as well as anyone. No, that's true. That that spreadsheet is uh, still uh, something I'm I'm mulling over, still debating it, and then uh, our team will uh, will continue to debate it and uh, move some things around when we arrive in Salem. We'll arrive in Salem uh, between Tuesday and Thursday. The group of us getting ready for. Friday night's games. Keith, I see you have uh, one final thought, and I don't have any other thoughts for the day, so I thought I would let you have your thought. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. Sure, I, this is something I noticed in, uh, in doing a little research for the podcast and uh, and for our broadcast coming up on Friday night. Whoa, whoa, whoa wait, I, wait, wait a minute. You do research for the podcast? Yeah, I do. Yeah, from time to time. Oh, crap. Depending on how, how busy the weekend is. It's, it's a lot easier to do when there's uh, only two games and you've already watched both of them and uh, you don't have to glean a whole heck of a lot of new information about what happened. Whereas, uh, you know, in a given week when we're trying to boil down 110, 120 games into what's relevant, it's uh, it's a lot harder to, uh, to quote unquote do research. But yeah, what I, f- I found uh, this interesting fact, if, if, I'm not even 100% certain it's a fact, but it, like the one we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, uh, best as we can ascertain going back into history. Pat, this is going to be the first matchup of two black quarterbacks in the Stag Bowl, and folks out there can decide whether that matters to them or not. Um, but it, it will also mean, uh, assuming Fulford and Robinson both start the game and one of them leads their team to a victory, that would uh, be the third year in a row where where a, uh, a team with a black quarterback has has won the the Stag Bowl. Uh, Mount Union did it in 2015 with Therese Scott, Blake Jackson with Mary Harden Baylor last season. And one of the reasons why I find it significant is because the further back I went in history, at least for the, the teams I could remember, there weren't even black quarterbacks who played. Now, um, in 2010, uh, Cecil Shorts, um, played some quarterback in a stag ball. I believe he was five or seven passing late in a loss for uh, for Mount Union. They had inserted him in relief of Matt Pilato, which is uh, maybe a blast from the past name for you if you were with us then. Uh, but Shorts went on to the NFL as a wide receiver, not necessarily as a quarterback. But the further back I went, and and speaking of blast for the, from the past, I mean I was thinking of names like. Gus Ornstein and and Ballard, Borchert, Smack, Adamson, Zach Bruni. I was going as far back as I could think of of quarterbacks in in the Stag Bowl and couldn't think of of any other black quarterback. So I don't know if that says something about the game or the state of the game, but yeah, I, I just found it interesting enough to mention that I that I would point out. 
that in and of itself might not be one of the storylines that we cover, but we'll have other storylines throughout the course of the week here as we get you ready for Stag Bowl 45. So look for features from uh, our own Ryan Tips and Adam Turr. Of course, uh, we mentioned that uh, we'll have the Gawardi Trophy broadcast on Wednesday night. We'll have our predictions coming out on Thursday night. Friday, if you are at all thinking about coming to the game, come to the game. Come uh, come tailgate in the parking lot. Uh, do all the things that uh, we're going to be doing for the final time in uh, Salem, Virginia for the Stag Bowl. And uh, I will be uh, looking forward to that. But also it will be uh, kind of a wistful thing for me because this will be my 19th football trip to go along with more than uh, 19 basketball trips and it's kind of the end of an era but right now it's the end of a podcast and this was around the nation podcast number 188 for the week of december 11th 2017 thanks for listening and tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week if you like this podcast please consider giving us a rating in apple podcasts or stitcher or wherever you get this and other fine podcasts because that will help other football fans find it the executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. And thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports, and you can join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Boards is in message boards. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. So keep an eye out for that new content. And then also after the game, join us. Join us at Mac and Bob's in Salem. It's uh, basically right off the uh, right on the main street in downtown Salem. It's uh, just about a mile or so from the stadium. We will be doing uh, Around the Nation podcast number 189 from there. Last year, we had the most outstanding player of the Stag Bowl come and join us for an interview. And that's the expectation now. The bar has been set. We expect you to join us, whoever that is, whoever who... Uh, gets that trophy I, I assume there's a trophy hopefully there's a trophy uh, because we'll see you there and uh, we'll be there with uh, Adam Turr and Frank Rossi and Ryan Tips and the whole gang uh, including Dave McHugh who uh, help us cover the Stag Bowl each and every year so come out and do it final time in Salem it's gonna be interesting next year Pat we have to take off days work to fly to Shenandoah Texas yeah, exactly. And find wherever the Mac and Bobs of Shenandoah is. I hope it's not like a Applebee's or something. There's definitely like a Mac and Barbecues or something. I guarantee you. I'm, I'm, can I Google this right now? Restaurants in Shenandoah, Texas. Barbecue and uh, Shinerbach would be uh, would be nice. For, I would appreciate that. That's a that, that's a beer you used not to not be able to find outside of Texas. Now you can get it in many places still. In Texas, I'm sure it tastes better, right? Just like Guinness tastes better in Ireland. I'm already thinking about Johnny's Italian Steakhouse, Lupe Tortilla, Lama Mediterranean Cuisine, ten best restaurants in Shenandoah, Texas. Look, if we got to go all the way there for the Stag Bowl next season, we're uh, we're eating something good. <laughs>